0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I am your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor, and also a registered representative for Sun Fund Services. My co host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, will be joining us a little bit later on the program. He's tied up uh, at an appointment at this moment. I should note the professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Really, we have two very special Guests: The first, a return guest, Mark Yusko. He's the founder, CEO, and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital. He's really one of the thought leaders in the industry. I uh, always love chatting with Mark, and we're going to get his take on 2017 and beyond. Uh, the second program, we're going to be second part of the program. We we'll talk with Bill Sweet. He's an investment advisor at Ritholtz Wealth Management, uh, a firm we've had on on the program a number of times. And Bill is is a, a specialist in tax policy, and that is something is is front and center for everybody always, but uh, uh, sort of interesting time of the year to be talking about that, tax changes coming, and what Bill talks about uh, to his clients. So we'll be looking forward to that part. But to, to start off the show, uh, and, and Mark, uh, sorry I don't have Professor Siegel here to join us for this intro comments, but uh, welcome back to our program.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy, and great to be with you again. And uh, look forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, so uh, just as a reintroduction t- for everybody to Mark, he's the founder, CEO, CIO of Morgan Creek. Before that, though, he was the CIO of the UNC Endowment. He worked with the, the CIO at the Notre Dame Endowment. Um, so he, he he writes a lot about policies uh, and, and his own firm here now. Uh, they, they get involved in running ETFs. We can't talk uh, about specific ETFs on our program, as always, Mark, but right. I know you guys are involved in that. Um, but yep. maybe you could help set us the stage here You know, for 2017. I, I always get comments that I I create long PowerPoint presentations. Yours, yours are so, sort of even epic. It puts my, me to shame. Uh, uh, we, we... Well,
1: you know, I, I, uh, I've never met a slide I didn't like because <clears throat> I create all my own slides, and I always say it's like choosing amongst your children. They're yeah. all great. Yeah. So, uh, but I also I use slide presentations to help me think. Uh, you know, creating the slides makes me sift through information, synthesize information, you know, which to me is the, <clears throat> the most important skill today is synthesis. You know, we're drowning in information, starved for knowledge, and uh, what the long PowerPoints allow me to do is, is kind of crystallize and distill my thoughts down to, to what hopefully are actionable ideas whether it be ETFs or managers or, or individual securities.
0: Well, I love I mean, it. I mean, I'm, I am say, for around to my team. You guys give me a hard time on slides. You look at this one. Um, no, so it's it's great. So, there you go. So, so let's start off. 2017, you have top 10 potential surprises for 2017. Yes. Maybe give us your big picture. Um, we'll, we'll go through as many of the surprises as we can, but give us your big picture view of the world uh, you know, I, I know one of your big takes is on interest rates and potentially heading for a recession. Maybe that's one of the, the big picture views that would, would most impact the U.S. And yeah, maybe, yeah, look, maybe start I mean, there. I mean, you
1: know, we start off with, with the, you know, the big one because the first thing about surprises is a surprise, definitionally, is a variant perception that has to be different from consensus. So you start off making people angry because you're going against consensus. But the point is where you make the big money in investing is not by doing what everybody's already expecting. It's by discounting the unexpected and, and capitalizing on it. So uh, one of our, you know, our first big surprise is that contrary to the just constant barrage of information that, you know, rates are going higher, the bull market and bonds is over. And, uh, and we think the lows, the secular lows for fixed income rates are ahead of us, not behind us. Mm. Uh, we think they are a couple of years off. And I think um, once this kind of hope trade fades, uh, people realize that all the promises that were made during the campaign, um, most of them aren't going to come true. The ones that actually do come true are going to take time, uh, and they're not going to happen right away. Um, I think rates will, will start down again because of demographics, debt, and deflation, the killer Ds, as I like to call them.
0: No, I mean I think this is one that I, th- this is one where I, I want to challenge my own beliefs here because I, you know, I, I think I tend to, to see, you know, we see a, a healthy economy at least from the, the you know, from the, the latest data we have today, pretty strong employment. Jeremy, um,
1: come on! Com- Fourth quarter GDP was one point nine percent. The year of two thousand sixteen was one point six. Twelve months ago, everybody, including the Fed, thought it was going to be three percent, and it finishes at one point six. And we get a jobs number today that's 227. It's actually the third highest jobs number in the past five Januaries. There's Jobs peaked in, in the middle of 14. They've been going down ever since on a trend line. This is not a good jobs number. It, it's, it'll get revised downward next month. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm crazy about how people are trying so hard. Not you personally, but yeah. so many people in the media are trying to make every piece of data That's all pretty darn negative, positive. I mean, it's, the, just, it's
0: not. Yeah. I mean, the, the big challenge we've talked about on this program with Professor Siegel a number of times is just the productivity numbers has been what's really disappointing. That the jobs gains have been okay for this part, but we've had okay. really, really okay. bad productivity. And so that seems to be. Now, I, do you think demographics are, are part of that? That we get this 100%. older population and they're not as productive as the younger people? Um, now, Trump's, you know, talking about kicking back a lot of regulations. A lot of people think the regulations has been one of the things keeping back productivity. Um, Wrong.
1: No, again, that is what people say, and they're wrong. I mean, productivity is very simple. Productivity is all about demographics. It turns out, magically, not surprisingly, that people who are 25 years old are not very productive. Now, people say, oh, what do you mean? They're, they're, They're good, smart people who are 25. That's not the point. The way productivity is measured, it's measured a certain way, and people who are 25 to 45 are just not very productive. People who are 45 to 65 are highly productive. And people who are 65 to 85, again, are not very productive. So demographics are destiny. And we can actually project not only what the working age population growth is going to be over the next 20 years, we can actually project out what productivity is going to be. And the idea that regulation is constraining productivity is is just a farce. Hmm. And everyone says, well, we can, we can invest in, in technology and make ourselves more productive. Mm. Not really, because the incremental productivity gain of installing a few robots, it actually goes against the human productivity measure, but that's a whole other longer, complicated story. But the bottom line is productivity is going to be half a percent over the next three to four years. Working age population growth is going to be three to four percent. That gives us one percent GDP growth over the next kind of three to four years on average. Now, maybe, maybe you could, you could squeeze out another 25 or 50 basis points, um, but we are going to be sub-2% for a while. And so that's the second surprise, right, which is we're bordering perilously close to recession. Which everybody says that's impossible. We can't have a recession. Well, actually, you can. And uh, if you look at the data, again, first quarter is always the weakest because for whatever reason, they, they talk about seasonal adjustment, but they don't know how to do it, I guess, because the first quarter is always the weakest. Um, of course, that's what seasonal adjustment's all about. But I, I, think, I think we could easily see a, I don't know that we'll get negative, um, but we could come close. Um, but the winter hasn't really been that cold, so I don't, I don't know that we'll get there. But you know we could. I don't think it's likely, but we certainly could have a recession this year, and that's just not in anybody's.
0: Forecast. Oh, I'd agree with that. Um, in, in terms of it's not in anybody's forecast, so I'm not sure if I had the soother session here, but it's tell me what. So, on Trump's policies, uh, you talked about welcome to Hooverville. Talk about what you're the most worried about on, on the U.S. And, and what Trump's policies are, are shaping up uh, to be.
1: I mean, there's just so many things to be worried about um, for U.S. investors. So, we, let's separate the economy and the, and the market for a second. So, in the market you should be worried that we're at the second-highest valuations in history. Um, so that, that's a problem. We're at the third-longest economic expansion in history, so we'll come back to that here in a second. And you should also be worried that um, interest rates, if people don't want to believe, my first surprise, interest rates are going to go down, and interest rates were actually to normalize, and if the Fed actually went through with raising rates, that's going to lower discount rates and multiples aren't going to expand So, you know, U.S. earnings, while they were up a little bit here for the fourth quarter for the first time in in five or six quarters, um, they weren't very strong. And year over year, we still have um, no gain in in earnings, overall earnings. So bad earnings, bad valuations, uh, that just doesn't make me feel good about, about being a U.S. investor. On the economic side, this whole welcome to Hooverville thing, there's so many things to be worried about. So in the United States, we've only elected a president without experience three times in history, William Henry Taft, Herbert Hoover, and Donald Trump. And the reason having no experience matters is once this you know, honeymoon of sitting in the safe space of the Oval Office and signing fancy pieces of paper goes away, you actually have to get out and engage with Congress in order to get laws passed. And if you don't know how Washington works... You don't know how the process works. It's going to be really tough, and we've seen it, right? It was a total disaster in 1929 and 30 when the economy slipped into recession, as is prone to happen in the first year of presidents that follow eight-year cycles. It's never happened in the last hundred years. We've never had a president who followed an eight-year term president who didn't have a recession in their first year. So we're seven Mm -hmm. for seven in 100 years. So the recession starts then Hoover, who wasn't very experienced, did a bunch of things along with Congress that were really very silly if you're trying to promote growth. So the first thing they did is something called the Mexican Repatriation Act. They literally went around the country, rounded up Mexicans, and forcibly marched them back to Mexico, which actually sounds kind of familiar to mm-hmm. today. Second thing they did is they passed this thing called the Smoot Hawley Tariffs Act. And tariffs are bad on every level and everybody has this feeling now they're all hopeful that you know trump is going to unwind these bad trade deals and he's going to have all this positive impact you're going to put all these tariffs on people well when we imposed the tariffs in 1930 guess what happened everyone else fought back and put tariffs on our stuff our exports went down the most of any country in the world The person who starts the war usually loses. And so it just isn't a good idea to even be talking this way. Uh, But, you know, they seem intent on doing it. And then, you know, they talk about decreasing regulation. The problem is every Republican administration talks about decreasing regulation. And in every case in history, when we've had a Republican sweep, we end up with more regulation, not less except in financial services. We always end up with less regulation in financial services like when Reagan came in. But then what happened was we had the massive S&L crisis caused by that deregulation. So, I just I'm just not I haven't heard anything that makes me very hopeful, you know, talk about fiscal spending. Well, it's not going to happen at at the earliest till 18 so to rally material stocks 25% you know, in November, doesn't make much
0: sense. Let me, let me reintroduce my guest here. We're talking with Mark Yusko, CIO of Morgan Creek Capital. Uh, so Mark, I want to push back on a few points there and then see your response. I mean, so I, I we've had this valuation discussion before, so this is not exactly new, but the yeah. on, on the valuation, so one of the things I talk about, I mean, we look at a few different ways of looking at the market, but certainly there's unprofitable firms that are distorting some of the P-E ratios of the market. So if I just looked at the profitable companies, the energy companies have a lot of losses that are destroying some of the earnings today. When I look at indexes without the unprofitable companies, we get about 16 times earnings which is a really normal multiple uh now you could say Did that's
1: okay jeremy you can't do
0: that y- yes you can mark i mean an energy companies exxon's earnings every, don't wipe out apple's cycle, earnings
1: every cycle you're going to have some industry that has bad earnings that's why they're called cycles so this idea of x financials or x tech or x energy it just doesn't make any sense earnings are earnings earnings have been flat in the s&p for the last three years the only reason the market's up is because the multiple expanded by over 60%. It went from 15 to 25.7. It's not going to go much higher. Now, it, it could go to 26, it could go to 27. I don't know where it could go. But we know that at some point, it's going back sub-double digits because it always does. Cycles work.
0: When interest rates and are double digits, they go back below double digits. But we Meaning you, it
1: goes to single digits. Yes. And I mean, The P-E ratio will go to single digits. And the thing is, Everyone thinks QE stopped in the U.S. It actually hasn't. The Fed is buying $48 billion worth of bonds every month. They call it reinvestment. It's still QE. Once, if that ever stops, I actually don't know that it will, but yeah. if it were to stop, the market would lose all that liquidity that's driving it, and I think we could have a very serious correction.
0: No, you did see Bernanke actually started to justify we're gonna have a higher balance sheet. One of the things I read this week is that just we're growing into the higher balance sheet necessities. So you may be right that they are not going to to actually decrease the size of the balance sheet over time. Um, Which is which is one interesting thing Um, Maybe let's move on beyond beyond the US and we could come back to to some of these these things on on the US But uh, you have a lot of different surprises, So maybe let's take the the case overseas So if the US is a a cheap market, I mean an expensive market Mm -hmm. you want to be looking overseas What is you know you have a few different surprises?
1: surprises, So we got two two overseas surprises one is is surprise number three I think um, which is Japan and you know, Japan, equities are cheaper. They're not as cheap as they were kind of 2012-13, but they're cheaper. The key to Japan is, is pretty simple. It's, it's all about the, the yen. And they need to weaken the yen. They need to weaken it a lot. san seems to have found his brain after he lost it January 29th last year when he went to negative interest rates. Um, and now that that stupidity of, of negative interest rates has kind of died and gone away, both in in Japan and Europe, although it's not completely gone out of Europe yet, uh, I think things will get better. But but we do like we do like Japan, we like Japanese financials, Japanese exporters, and then surprise number five is probably my favorite this year. In that uh, last year, my favorite was surprise number nine, which was you know the cure for low prices is low prices, and that the commodity bull market uh, was going to start after a five year. Atrocious bear market. And back in January last year, everyone thought I was an absolute idiot for saying commodities could rally, but commodities had a great year. And I think this year, European financials will be the commodity of 2017. You know, I think that uh, the Italian referendum um, failed just like no one thought it would. Um, and then when, I, sh- I should say, went, at first, no one thought the Italian referendum would fail. And then everyone jumped on and said well it will fail because everything else went the opposite of what the polls say and then they said well if it does fail and Renzi steps down then Italy's going to you know collapse and then Europe's going to collapse and then everything's going to collapse well it didn't happen i mean the market actually went up the day of the Italian referendum so part of the reason for that is that Germany finally relented to let the Italian government bail out the worst or the best of the worst of the Italian banks they're going to let the worst of the worst go mm but uh, they did put together a, a multi-billion dollar bailout fund. So, you know, we really like the Italian banks. We like the, the Portuguese banks, the Spanish banks, the even, even the French banks. Um, you know, some of the German banks, like Deutsche Bank, are still cheap. Uh, the cheapest of the cheap are the Greek banks, uh, but they've got to get past this working group. And Schwabo, schwabe I can, print, can never pronounce his name Schauble.
0: right. I don't know if I got that right either.
1: Yeah, I, you probably said it better than me. But the guy in Germany, he is still being a hard ass with cheap rest. I just don't think they like each other. And, you know, so I think there's going to be volatility until I think the working group meets on the 9th and then they have a final meeting on the 20th. But after that, I think the Greek banks could be... Really, quite extraordinary.
0: So, interesting. Recap. Interesting commentary here. I mean, so on, in Japan, you like. Japanese financials exporters think the yen's going to weaken. What do you any and and I know one of your themes has to do with the dollar where you think people have moved too much to the dollar. Uh, yep. and some people on Europe say well if if we're going to get a rally in the banks, we're going to get a rally in the euro. Um I, you know there's a lot of discussion with will the euro survive all this, you know, political upheaval that we're seeing with surprises on on European politics. Do you have a view on, you know, how the euro itself plays out with all these different elections we're getting next year with yep. the so Netherlands. We're and-
1: actually we're we're an interesting dichotomy right because you know the 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 consensus is that the dollar is going to strengthen this year um and we're actually on the other side of that we think the dollar is actually going to weaken um but the way it's going to weaken is going to be interesting we think it's actually going to um strengthen versus the yen because we think the yen is going to weaken see part of it is funny right strength versus weakness if the dollar quote-unquote Strengthens? Is it really because it got better? Or is it just because the other things got worse? So it's it's a you know it's a relative that, or a chicken and the egg thing. So we actually think that the the yen is going to just keep devaluing, keep devaluing, keep devaluing. So we think that the other currencies like the renminbi, and b, which you know is probably going to be more stable than people think. I think a lot of the emerging market currencies are going to be stronger than people think, and we think the euro is probably going to be stronger than people think because they've got some inflation. Draghi's run out of stuff to buy. He's probably going to have to stop QE or taper or even start, he might even have to raise rates if German uh, inflation gets much worse. Because at the end of the day, the euro is going to stay intact. EU is going to stay intact because Germany wants it to be that way. Germany created this whole thing, France too, but mostly Germany, because they are the most mercantilist country in the world. Everybody complains about China being a currency manipulator and being a mercantilist. Germany is the biggest currency manipulator in the world and the biggest mercantilist. And what that means is they artificially manipulate the currency by bringing in the crappy countries into the good currency, the Deutschmark. Like if they had the Deutschmark, it would be 40% higher than it is today. Yeah. They bring all the crappy countries into the euro to weaken the currency so they can sell their cars and machine tools all over the world. So if you go to you know, China... All the cars are Volkswagens, BMWs, Mercedes. You go to London, BMWs, Mercedes. You come to the United States, BMWs, Mercedes, Volkswagens, because they are great at mercantilism. So the EU and the Euro, I would say, it's like Hotel Cal EU, California. California, um, you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave.
0: Yeah, no, I, I that's I, I, I'm I'm somewhat with you on that one. Um let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Mark Yusko, CIO of Morgan Creek Capital. Uh, a lot of interesting probing thoughts here. Um it's it's interesting your thoughts on the you know, I, I when I talk about the yen I I say it is very interest rate sensitive. So, you know, the view on the the, the, the currency I mean on the interest rates here could be one of the headwinds for the yen. If you saw the, the you know, the rates falling back down, that that yep. could be, you know, strengthening yeah, the end
1: differential is, is real. You know, last two years, we had a surprise in both years that the Fed would not raise rates. You know, two years ago, the Fed said they were going to raise three times. Last year, they said they were going to raise four times. In both cases, they barely got one in in the last two, months, two yeah. weeks of the year. And again, they're saying this year they're going to raise four times. I think there's zero probability that they raise four times this year. I think we'll be lucky to get one. Um, I think it will be, I think it's less likely to be early than late, but, but we'll see how that goes. Um, as I said, I think that first quarter GDP number is going to get re- revised down again, and that's going to give her pause on raising rates. Now everybody talks about the political stuff, and but I just don't think the U.S. economy is strong enough to deal with tightening liquidity. So I guess they could, you know, Expand the balance sheet, like you said, Bernanke's making noises about now, um, and then quietly lift rates so that they save face. I think it's all just a big dance. You know, liquidity is still abundant, and yet it's not generating any GDP growth. It's not generating any inflation. And that's because monetary policy doesn't work that way. You
0: no, know, we had we had yeah. Pat Harker, who's the the president of the Philly Fed here a few weeks ago, and he basically said we're at our limits. Monetary policy can't do much. We've created the conditions for growth, but it, like you say, it's sort of how many people do you have working, and how productive are those people? And monetary yeah. policy can't do anything for the productivity of the people. So, you got this demographics: where we have declining po- declining working age people. And it's really, you know, what can you do to get that productivity number higher? Is, and that's, that's, you know, that's well, the key I guess question.
1: There's nothing you can do. I, I, I actually tweeted about this, you know, when people were making all the noises about how we're going to have 4% GDP growth this year because Trump's president. I'm like, it, did, did they hand out a, a magic wand of some sort? No, I, there's, there's no magic wand. There's nothing that anyone can do to make America as a whole younger you can't do it you can not you actually can't you can you, you 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 could maybe 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 make a small dent with massive immigration but we're actually going the other way um he may get you know, nominal gdp with banned.
0: inflation if if he gets his you know his people think if we just don't do exports that we're going to stop sending money overseas that is going to raise gdp mathematically and uh you know maybe the result is inflation and and higher nominal gdp but not higher real gdp
1: yeah again that certainly possible to, to fudge the numbers like gap accounting versus real accounting. Yep. You know, I say earnings before bad stuff. Um, the company says they made X, excluding all the bad things that happened because they say they're not recurring yet. They happen every quarter. So I, 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 I look at real. And real GDP is going to fall because every day in the United States, 10,000 people turn 65 every single day for the next 17 years. There's nothing you can do to change that. And you know what's amazing is Harry Dent told us this was going to happen. He wrote a book in 1993 called The Great Boom Ahead, and he said that starting in 2008 we'd have a 15-year bear market, uh, in she called depression, and that bonds would outperform stocks for that 15-year period. And everybody said that's impossible. Well, it's actually happening. Bonds have outperformed stocks since 2008, and it's it's it makes sense because aging people. One, they prefer bonds to equities. Two, they're not as productive. Three, they drop out of the labor force and growth slows. So none of this is not predictable. In 2023, that's when rates likely bottom. That's when working age population starts to grow again. The problem you have there is by then, the emerging countries will have now built up this massive lead because they've been taking our technology and our um, innovation and applying it to very good working-age populations, very young populations, where you actually have some inflation and you have some real growth. And, you know, look, I think all the returns are going to be made in places like India and China and and uh, Brazil over the next decade
0: compared to mm. the United States. That's interesting. So let, let's try to, as we're getting down to the final few minutes of this this first segment, why don't we sort of step back? So we've talked a lot of details on individual parts of Know your your economic outlook. You talked about liking Japan, U.S. rates heading down, um, European financials. Maybe you know go back to your endowment hat of the world. You have a a pie that you need to allocate. Um, talk about how you would approach it from you know individuals listening in their own portfolios. Maybe you know how how they think about it. A lot of people tend to yep. be U.S. biased yep. in their portfolios. So try to give some basic recommendations to yeah, people.
1: You, you got to get rid of the home market myopia. And it exists not just in the United States. So the people in Japan have more Japanese equities. People in the U.K. have more U.K. equities. People in the United States have more U.S. equities. You've got to stop. You have to skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where the puck is. You know, Wayne Gretzky was the greatest hockey player of all time because he skated to where the puck was going to be. So today, people are going to have more in the U.S., less overseas. You want to flip-flop that. You, there are four regions that you want to invest in in equities, U.S., Europe, Japan and emerging, think you should actually have the most in emerging, followed by Europe and Japan and the US probably the least. That's totally wow. antithetical to most people's view. Uh, second is traditional fixed income, not very attractive, so you're going to have to find other means, uh, particularly in places like hedge funds. Everybody says, no, hedge funds are terrible, hedge funds are dead. Hedge funds have $3 trillion. And yes, they've had seven bad years because of zero interest rate policies and QE but low volatility hedge funds um, that are bond substitutes are really really effective here and are going to be effective particularly if if you had uh, and i'm wrong and um, that happens all the time that uh, you don't get the trough in rates as as abruptly as we think it's going to happen and rates were to actually rise in the short term that kills bond returns and then finally if you can get access, and it's hard, but if you can get access to private investments, that's why endowments outperform. If you look at all the great pools of capital in the world, endowments, foundations, wealthy families, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, the ones that do the best have the most exposure to private investments because they get an illiquidity premium from private equity, private real estate, private energy, private debt. So the more you can do in that, the better. It's, as I said, it's hard for the average investor, but it is possible. And that's where the, the biggest alpha is going to come from is in that illiquidity premium because there's so much liquidity in the world. There's so many people fighting over the same securities that it, I just think there's, there's very little alpha to be had. Uh, and that's all another conversation we have another sure. day about passive versus active. Yeah. I know when it. everyone says active management is dead... It's not.
0: Yeah. So why don't we um, give you a chance to close also. So tell us a little bit about Morgan Creek um, for people who want to follow you. And um, we can't talk again specific funds on the program. Yeah. But, no, no, but no talk worries. a little bit about yep. yourself and if people like what they're hearing, listening to you, how to find you, how to get access to the type of things that you guys are doing.
1: Yep. So the easiest way to find us is uh, our website is Uh I'm on Twitter at, at Mark Yusko, M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. And I link a lot of my stuff there quarterly letters and presentations. We do a monthly webinar that we're talking about this, this 10 surprises. We do a new topic every month. We have links to that on the website and at, at uh, my Twitter um, pin tweet. Um, and then, you know, we're an advisory firm. We work with families, institutions, etc., uh, doing asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction. We have some, some vehicles and funds for different types of investors all on the website, and uh, you can find us pretty easily. It's always good. a pleasure to be to be with you, Jeremy. Lots to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that I didn't mention that, that's really, really important, and again, maybe you can bring it up on with one of your other guests, but hedging, 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 hedging. If you're going to invest overseas, you got to think about currency hedging or find tools that help you do currency hedging.
0: You know, I'm a, a big believer in that. And so, Mark, I, I appreciate uh, you coming on. And thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Talk to you soon, man. We're going to have a continued conversation. We'll be back with Bill Sweet of Ritholtz Wealth Management. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'll be talking this half hour with Bill Sweet of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, but before we turn the conversation to Bill, Professor Siegel back from an appointment. Uh, Professor, thanks for for jumping on here with for a few minutes with us.
2: Yeah, no, I'm. I'm happy to So, an uh, awful lot of things are happening. A
0: lot of things happening daily basis here. We got Dow back above twenty thousand. Right. Uh, I was doing my best Professor Siegel impression on CNBC today. We talked about <laughs> Dow thirty thousand uh, by two thousand twenty five, eight, eight seven eight years from now. Um, you know, so any that, that shouldn't be too hard, right? Five percent a year for for the next 5%, seven years. Uh,
2: yeah, well, five percent. Yeah, now five percent. The dividend offsetting the inflation is about a five percent nominal per year. That's fourteen years on a right. So, you know, you could you could think of that. Uh, it might even be a little better than that. Probably twelve years or something like that.
0: So, um, what's what's your sense on what's yeah. happening this week? Uh, any any I mean,
2: lots are happening this week. I mean, let's start with a block. What I consider a totally blockbuster labor report could not be better uh you know you had a huge uh gain and and more so in 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 the private sector two hundred and thirty seven thousand versus one seventy five yet there were so many people coming into the labor force that the unemployment rate actually ticked up from four seven to four eight and all this talk about wage pressure, where is it i mean um not only did we only come in at one tenth well below expectations actually expectations were three tenths Goldman Sachs thought it was going to be five-tenths, given all the minimum wage laws that actually kicked in on January 1st. That, that was certainly in the wrong direction, but they actually revised down by two-tenths of the December. And so year over year, two-and-a-half is not threatened. None of these are threatening. I mean, we're not tightening the labor force. We're not pushing up wages. Now, we do want wages ultimately to rise, but not when there's too much pressure on, on the labor force. This is obviously, in my opinion, kills... A, a March increase, there was a lingering possibility. Um, June, I think, is still a likely one. But if we get some other great numbers like that, like we've had, you know, if we get a few more reports like this, we're not even going to have one in June. The Fed doesn't really need to tighten. So this was, I think, a really uh, a, a very good report and tended to confirm. Uh, the Fed's announcement on Wednesday, now they didn't have the report, but basically they saw no urgency to to, uh, to move rates up.
0: Mm. So on the first part of the program, we had Mark Yusko of Morgan Creek, and, and he you know, has a, a long-term outlook that we should ignore this move higher in interest rates, that he thinks uh, the demographic story is just going to continue to put pressure on rates over time, and he, he sort of saw you know, a recession looming. Um, any, any counter-arguments to that? Well,
2: we do know that the demographics are a long-term drag on growth. I mean, in a sense that it, you know you get the labor force is growing at almost a record slow pace. Um, that combined with the you know uh, participation rates going down and all that. I mean, so that part is slow. What what, of course, has been the shocker is the technological change. But in anything, I, I would argue today puts the end of the. Uh, this expansion further in the future. I mean, expansions end when there's over-tightened um, labor markets. The Fed is tightening, getting that rate up, um, and uh, and and that is marking. This This actually, I think, defers the day then that's going to happen. And now we don't know when that's going to happen. Will it be two years from now, one year from now, or can we run with this even longer? But today's data, I, I would say, sets that, back. Um, we we really don't see it. I mean, the, the, we know the stock market is high, but it's high because interest rates are relatively low. And, you know, you and I have both said we don't think interest rates are going much above 3%, and at the end of the cycle, even 35 So that's not something I think is, is uh, threatening for uh, those uh, wanting equities. Of course, today's big winners so we're definitely financials. Uh, you know, not only the word about Dodd-Frank, but renegotiate Dodd-Frank, but the uh, elimination um, of, of the uh, fiduciary rule, which basically limited what uh, a lot of brokers could sell, uh, you know, was, uh, was uh, negotiated. The, 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 all this is music to the air. Today could not have been a better day for financials. They're up almost 2% on the day. They're really the, the major driver of the S&P, which is up uh, two-thirds of 1%.
0: Very good. Any 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 clothing thoughts here before we let you go? Uh,
2: no, I think uh, you know the Fed is out of the way. The labor market is out of the way. It, it will turn back to uh, Trump and what he does, and you know we don't. You know, he's put the ban on. If he doesn't extend this ban, um, uh, that would be favorable. If it starts extending to other people and tightening up, I think that's why, why the market was soft uh, late last week and only this week, and that would be a concern. At this particular point, I don't see him tightening up. So as a result, we're going to just wait for the end of the earnings season. So
0: Sounds good. Have, have a good week. We'll, we'll talk to you next week.
2: Thank you, Jeremy. Bye.
0: Um, so we're going to be talking for the rest of the program with, with Bill Sweet. He's an independent investment advisor representative with Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, the firm is a, a client of, of Wisdom Trees. Uh, and you know, we've, we've followed uh, Ritholtz for a long time. It's the first time we're talking to, to Bill on the program. Bill, welcome to our program.
3: Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Our whole team speaks very highly of you. We really enjoy your work, including this show. So thank you.
0: Well, very good. Um, well, so you have a, a particular role. Well, maybe talk about your background, uh, how you got to Ritholtz, and talk about you know what you tend to focus on for your clients.
3: Yeah, sure. So I uh, grew up uh, my, kind of an engineering family. My dad was in the U.S. Army. I uh, got a computer engineering degree from RPI, but the way I paid for college uh, was uh, RTC scholarship. So I actually joined the U.S. military uh, as a very young man, uh, deployed to Iraq, uh, was in charge of a tank platoon, and when I decided it was time to to kind of get off of that cycle, I uh, joined my uh, father-in-law's uh, tax practice in a little town called Tuxedo Park uh, in New York, and so there for the past 10 years, I've been doing a lot of individual income tax work for specific clients, in the weeds, and ultimately got really excited. Talking about markets and investing—the sort of stuff that you and Professor Siegel talk about every week—it's a, just a very dynamic, sort of exciting field. And one of the things that really confused me when I was having clients come, you know, ask me about their account and what they're doing is why more and more investment advisors, more investment planners, weren't thinking so much about income taxes and the effect the taxes have on clients' investments over the long run. It's one of the—it's one of the biggest things that I, I think doesn't get enough attention. Uh, it's something once a year people sit down with and go over with their CPA and my personal philosophy and what we do at real holds wealth is really think about taxes throughout the year.
0: Well, first, thanks for for serving the country over in Iraq. I'm sure that presents a, a whole lot more, uh, you know, challenges than you're getting on a day to day here. Um, but uh, this is sort of inter- interesting conversations on what can you do on, on tax time. we I know we're 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 just what uh, April 15th coming around uh, a yeah. few months. Um, what maybe you know talk about some of the basics that you go over with your clients. I mean, what are the the types of things? you know, from a high level that, you know, you see sort of big mistakes people are making, things you try to, you know, focus on right away, you get new clients.
3: Sure thing. So probably like just the number one thing is including income tax planning in in the portfolio construction. So that's a huge, huge thing that I think a lot of smaller RAs or smaller broker firms don't pay a lot of attention to in just how inefficient it is to hold certain assets in taxable accounts. Taxes aren't something we can really ever get away with, right? If we have investment gains, we're going to pay capital gains and that's okay. But there are ways along the way of a of a 30 or 40 or 50 year investment plan to, to really be smart about where you're locating your assets, be smart about what type of, of funds or securities you're holding in specific accounts to minimize tax drag. And so just to give you a real quick example, you know, 1940s Mutual Fund Act. Not to get too wonky on on what you know what the weeds are, but you know, because you you're with a mutual or a fund company, they old 1940s mutual funds needed to distribute about 90 percent of their capital gains to investors to avoid taxation at the corporate level, and so every December, about two months ago, uh, anybody who's holding a taxable, at, usually actively managed mutual fund gets a little surprise at capital gains distribution. One of the things in my practice I always thought was kind of funny was some people thought this was like a bonus. It was like a surprise. You know, they, they didn't realize that that was being paid out of the net asset value of their fund. And really the, the kind of key problem with that specifically is you're paying income tax today on something you may not use for 20 or 30 or 40 years if you have a long-term financial plan like we advocate for it at Ritholtz Wealth. And so these distributions, combined with dividend distributions, interest, interest income from, let's say, a bond fund, can really act as a pretty big headwind against investors after-tax performance. It will not show up on a Morningstar report. You won't see it on a, on a headline number when a Barron's Mutual Fund report comes out. But in the real world, we, we don't eat pre-tax returns. We, we eat what's left over. So estimates on this, journey vary. Uh, It can be anywhere. Gerstein Fisher had a great study about two years ago, about 1.3% per year for taxable investors. A New York Times Lipper study, 1.8. A Morningstar study showed it will average about 3.2%. So even Mm. if we take that at 1.5% per year, that's a serious headwind to investors reaching their financial goals. And anything you can do on an after-tax basis, it's not sexy. You're not going to win, win awards from fund managers, but if you're really interested in taking care of your clients as an advisor, adding 70, 80 basis points of after-tax performance is just as good as as anything else you can do.
0: So now, what what are the types of things you do suggest uh, as a way to try to help improve that, that tax efficiency?
3: Yeah, so again, and this is no surprise for anybody who's been through a CFP exam, but there are certain asset classes that are really, really tax efficient, and certain asset classes are tax inefficient. So uh, a high-yield corporate bond, as an example, or a managed futures strategy are usually a catastrophe to be held in, a, in an individual taxable account versus uh, a tax-qualified account, such as a 401k or an IRA, just given that these are high, <clears throat> typically high turnover or generate a lot of ordinary income that are being taxed at the highest marginal tax rates. So the the highest taxed investor in the country is a couple living in New York City or a single individual living in New York City. They're paying 40 percent of their income tax to the federal government and about 13 percent to the state and city of New York. And there was a little 4 percent additional uh, Medicare surcharge added a couple years ago on any investment. So that, that can add up to as much as 53% on ordinary income. It's just the numbers are staggering for, for sort of wealthier folks. And just flipping a little bit and holding those assets, if they're part of your diversified financial plan in a different account, can shield that income from taxes and, and add to your after-tax return over time
0: yeah so one of the things that we were uh, that got me interested in looking at you one of our, our friends online um, you were talking about trying to look to a, a Roth IRA conversion that's something I, I myself maybe not have thought about enough over time is thinking about Roth IRA versus regular IRA Maybe walk through you know what are the, the you know the, the types of people who should look towards Roth IRAs versus regular uh, IRAs uh, and, and why your our, our friend was so excited to have talked to you
3: Yeah, so I definitely would, a huge advocate for Roth structures. So just to kind of lay it out for someone who isn't too familiar with the tax code, there are generally two flavors of tax-qualified accounts, uh, traditional and then Roth. And so a tax-qualified account enjoys some special privileges, enjoys some shielding from taxation from the federal government. It applies to 401Ks, which we've all heard of, 403Bs, 457 government plans, and also IRAs, which just anybody with earned income can have. So by far, a traditional IRA or 401k is the most common. Uh, in a traditional 401k, if you're under 50, you can sock away about $18,000 a year there and defer paying income tax until distribution. So this is a very common thing. I, I hope I hope the basic investor is familiar with it. If we sort of put that in the dollar terms for a taxpayer in a 25% bracket plus 5% for the state, that's about $5,400 a year that they're not paying income tax on. So obviously, that that's a big number relative to somebody making fifty or or $100,000 a year, that, that's not a small amount. And any gains that happen inside of those accounts defer for as long as they can. A Roth is the exact opposite. And maybe at the end of this call, I might just go take a look at your employer-sponsored plan and just see, do they have a Roth option for my 401k? A Roth's the opposite. You, you don't get a tax break up front. You don't get any special treat for contributing, except for maybe an employer match. But if you hold on to that account for five years and you wait till 59 and a half, you get your initial investment back plus any gains completely income tax free, including at the state level. So that's a very rare thing in the tax code. The Really, the only income that comes tax free, like in the U.S. tax code, life insurance, which unfortunately involves somebody passing away, 15 uh, percent of Social Security income at, at a minimum. And then Roth IRA gains; those are typically the only sorts of tax-free income that that the, your regular investor can enjoy. So, you know, the I, I don't think it's an either-or question. So that that's something that comes up a lot. You see a lot of blog posts about this, and clients ask, "Hey, what should I do?" The answer is probably both. Yeah. There, there's really no reason not to have a bucket of traditional tax-deferred assets, a Roth bucket, and then if you're fortunate enough to save on top of that a taxable account too.
0: Yeah, so this Roth IRA, I mean, one of the questions people used to say is, well, if you think your taxes are going to go up in the future, um, you know, the, perhaps the Roth is, is where you want to go. If you think your taxes are going to go down in the future, perhaps the regular the regular 401k is going to go. And so if we do have this Trump administration that's going to lower corporate taxes, isn't that a, or, or personal taxes, isn't that a, a motivation now, you know, if you weren't doing the Roth before, that you might be getting some of the best tax rates you're going to get for some time if, if Trump does lower personal taxes. So if you weren't doing the Roth, before perhaps now is the time to start thinking about doing a Roth.
3: Yeah, and we'll we'll absolutely see. I mean that that's something I'm really paying a lot of close attention to is what's going to happen to personal tax rates. But you're absolutely right. If we get this golden opportunity, so highest marginal tax rates drop from forty percent uh, for you know a couple making four hundred thousand dollars to thirty three if there's this pass-through opportunity that, that's much bandied about, that if you're receiving income from a business that you could be capped at 15 or 25%, that could be as much as a 15% reduction on on taxes. And we've sort of seen over the last 20 years how tax rates probably will end up moving in cycles, right? If we continue to see this yin and the yang, where we have conservatives and liberals, Democrats, Republicans kind of always fighting about whether taxes should be high or low or medium or whatever else, It'll be interesting to see if this might be a really neat window to sort of maximize some tax planning, get some funds in, pay a lower tax rate, hopefully in 2017, probably in 2018, and then for the next two or three years or however long uh, the current political climate continues, and absolutely, and particularly if you have 20, 30, 40 years to invest which is basically anybody under the age of 40, hopefully, that would be the plan. In the context of a broad financial plan, I, I think that a Roth IRA makes sense for most taxpayers.
0: We're talking with Bill Sweet, investment advisor representative at Ritholtz Wealth Management, talking about his tax policies, uh, his tax recommendations he, he makes to people. Uh, we should also know for anybody listening in, um, just a basic recommendation, you should always consult your own tax advisor, not just take basic advice from, from us on, on the program here. Um, um, Bill, so any you know anything elsewise on this Roth IRA, regular IRAs that we haven't covered? You think that, that's worth talking about?
3: Yes, yeah, so you just mentioned the conversation we were having online, and you know, I'd invite everybody to follow Jeremy on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, and it's a lot of a lot of fun tax stuff that we go over from time to time. But yeah, I was helping an individual. So for the last uh, oh boy. Um, I can't remember when this implication went in, but Roth IRAs, if you're a married couple making more than about $190,000, you're not allowed to contribute directly to a Roth IRA. That, that, that's prohibited. However, there is a really big loophole in the tax code in that you can convert assets that are in traditional accounts to a Roth account, uh, an unlimited amount of conversions at, at any time, and that, that's available for anybody at any income range. So you can be making $10 million a year, and you can convert your traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. There's a, there's a huge catch to that. And the catch is, if you do any conversions, you're going to pay any income tax on any tax-deferred assets that you have. So typically, if you built up, let's say, $100,000 in a traditional IRA, or 401k, you rolled that out in a traditional IRA, if you decide to convert that, you're going to pay income tax on $100,000 today and so maybe that's not a great idea for folks, but the situation that we discussed with our friend was it's it's possible, if you want to, to roll your tax-deferred assets into a tax-qualified plan at work. A 401k plan, a 403b plan, those are, not, those are definitely not IRAs. And so therefore, when you do that, that opens up the opportunity to make non-deductible contributions to a traditional and then convert that right away, effectively not paying any tax on the conversion. Now, if you're doing that, you already have after-tax funds, so in theory, those funds have already been taxed, so it's not like you're getting anything for free, but what allows you to do is circumvent a little bit of that 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 cap on the loophole and kind of get around by, by basically adding assets to a Roth, even if you're over the contribution limit. So just a couple of caveats to mention there. Like you said, I would echo, do not do this by yourself. You know, definitely consult with your income tax planner before you do anything of this nature, and you really have to be careful because... While this loophole exists, and I haven't found any evidence of any tax court case where this has been adjudicated, the IRS can and sometimes does apply different doctrines to prevent this sort of activity. And so you just want to do this kind of carefully and as part of a strategic plan.
0: Yeah, I, I, I never like hearing the word loophole because that does mean it seems <laughs> something's going to change. Uh, we have about four minutes. And I, I'm going to follow up with you on that because that was an yeah. interesting conversation. Haven't really thought about that. And I'll have to study what you said because it went it went by pretty quickly there. Um, but so, you know, we, we've got a final three or four minutes. Um, we talked a, a broader on taxes and some, some specific recommendations. Maybe you know. Touch on uh, in the news today, we are we, hearing that fiduciary rule potentially Trump holding back on that. Your firm, I'm, I know, has strong views on this. Talk about you know why why people might think about Rid Holtz, your place in the industry.
3: Yeah. So in general, we've been beating the drum on this since the firm was incepted about why it's so important to have a fiduciary advisor. I just can't, if I were to talk to just a random person on the street and say, you can have two different types of planners or advisors. You can have one that legally is obligated to place your interests before their own. And then you have one that kind of sort of has to do that sort of maybe not really though. And I, any reasonable person would choose to do business with an advisor that would place their interest first, that would you know, be susceptible to some sort of uh, litigation or some sort of action if they chose not to. And ultimately, like, why leave it up to chance? Uh, I, I I really can't see any situation where anyone that that has financial goals that they want to achieve wouldn't use uh, advice that that they knew was coming from an unconflicted source. And, and if you followed Josh Brown and his work for his entire career, you know how 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 bad it can be out there in the investing world and how it's not every single investment provider that's not a fiduciary doesn't do the right thing for their clients. But why leave it to chance? The the financial goals that an individual has, in our opinion, are much too important. They're much too valuable. And ultimately, I don't see any reason not to ha- to have the highest standard advisor. That's the standard that we live up to. If we're not the right fit for you or or there's an investment minimum situation, there are other fiduciary advisors out there. But but we strongly believe that that's the right thing to do uh, for clients, for investors and for, for the industry, frankly.
0: Yeah, Josh writes a lot about this topic. I love how he says that this could be the worst thing that happens to some of these firms if it doesn't go through. Careful yeah. what you wish for, because you need to follow this type of standard as it is. And so, you know, it, it it's the industry is going in that direction, anyways. Um, last last sort 30, of 30, 40 seconds. Any closing thoughts? We talked about a lot of a lot of different things here.
3: So, yeah, the only other thing maybe I can hop back on at some point, but just, you know, we are anticipating some income tax changes in the Trump-Ryan tax plans. And so there's a lot that needs to be reconciled there. There's a lot of other issues, but it does look like there are some some headwinds, some tailwinds coming to investors uh, individually. and, And we're very favorable. We're very excited to analyze those, get that information to our clients, get it out to the general public.
0: Yeah, no, I think this is the tax changes is one of the big focal points of this year. Um, you know, we talk about in the program if if he cuts corporate taxes to the the you know Trump wants fifteen percent, Ryan's talking yeah. about twenty percent. That could be one of the very big supportive things for the market. Hopefully, uh, if we get personal tax changes, it's going to give you a lot more uh, a lot more things to think about. How can you help your clients? Uh, this has been a great conversation. Bill Sweet, he's an investment advisor representative at Ritholt's Wealth Management. Uh, And I should disclose again, Ritholtz has been a client of Wisdom Trees and and Mark Yusko, Morgan Creek Capital, they've been a client uh, of ours as well in the past. I just want to thank our producer here, Patty Hall, uh, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Have a great week, everybody.